right, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles. Uh, I know many of you bring your Bibles to worship on Sundays. And if you don't bring your Bible to, to worship on Sunday, um, I want to encourage and invite you to bring your Bible on Sunday. We are in Luke 1, and the sermon series during Advent this year is called Joy to the World. And the reason why we're uh, going through this sermon series and uh, really kind of landed on this theme is because... It just seems like there's a lack of joy to the world today, the world in which we live. And um, uh, at the same time, we're reminded in Scripture, and we looked at this last week, um, that what we're living through right now, this lack of joy to the world, um, that was really part of the Christmas story, the original Christmas story uh, 2,000 years ago. That was the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the story that we read about last week uh, and kind of unpacked a little bit, who were the parents of John the Baptist. And we're going to continue looking at the backstory leading up to Christmas, up to Luke 2. Uh, we all know the story of Christmas, uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and uh, the shepherds and the angels. And so we're kind of backing up a little bit and looking at uh, how did we get there uh, over these uh, couple weeks. It had been 400 years of silence uh, when the prophet Malachi last wrote. And so it's this whole idea of joy to the world. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. So get ready. I don't know if you've been to the movies lately, but before, you know, when you go into a movie theater, you watch the, the previews or the trailers or whatever of upcoming movies. That's what this sermon series is all about. The main feature is coming um, and so we're going to just kind of get little snippets here and there, looking at and preparing our hearts. And today we're going to look at the story of Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if you're in Luke 1, I'm going to go ahead and invite us to bow our heads as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you indeed brought joy to the world. You continue to bring joy to the world. God, we live in a dark, dark world and as we sang about this morning and as we continue to reflect on the ways in which your light has come to dwell among us and that, God, you invite us um, to reflect that light. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, throughout history, there's been um, quite a number of unusual birth stories. A couple of years ago, uh, there were some quintuplets uh, born in England, and I know some of you followed along that story. Can you imagine, uh, ladies, uh, five babies uh, all of a sudden show up? Uh, or maybe you remember that story coming out of Iowa of the septuplets, four boys, three girls, one mama, one day, boom, instant you know, family, right? I mean, that's... A lot of babies, uh, lots of unusual baby stories. And then I thought, you know, it's not just, you know, uh, these unusual baby stories of having lots of babies, but there's also uh, the stories of big babies. And maybe you moms uh, compare notes of how big your babies were. Um, and I just went looking a little bit to find out that a, a couple years ago, there was a woman in San Francisco uh, she gave birth to a 16-pound, one-ounce baby, which is really, really big, right? Uh, and just for fun, I went to the Guinness Book of World Records and learned that about 100 years ago, there was a woman in Canada who gave birth to a 
23-pound baby. Now, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I fully believe that. That sounds like a toddler, right? I mean, does, how, how does that really even happen? Uh, maybe it's real. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But uh, that would be an unusual birth if that really happened. Um, scripture is also filled with several unusual birth stories of babies being born. Uh, you might remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. It says they were close to 100 years old, you know, when they first had their child. At, at 75, you know, the angel came you know, and, and told them they were going to have a baby. And they're like, yeah, this isn't going to happen. But at about 100 years old, um, that's, we can agree, a pretty unusual uh, baby story, right? And then there's the story of uh, when Isaac and Rebecca, they had a baby. Uh, they had two babies, uh, Jacob and Esau. And remember that story when not just the twins, but it's, it's how they came out, right? So Esau came first, and then Jacob was grabbing on to his ankle. Uh, and throughout the rest of his life, he was trying to trip up his brother. Remember that story of Jacob and Esau? Very unusual story. Again, then there's the story also in the Old Testament of the prophetess Hannah, and she had a baby, and she couldn't get pregnant, and after lots of prayer and waiting on the Lord, um, uh, she delivered the baby of the prophet Samuel, and, uh, and he lived in the temple and kind of all that stuff. So, you know, interesting stories throughout even scripture of unusual births. And then last weekend, if you were here, we looked at the story of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it said they were very old, uh, according to Scripture, when they got pregnant and had a baby. So again, this unusual, miraculous stories of what God is up to. Well, today we're not going to just look at an unusual birth uh, story, um, but the Immaculate Conception, there are no other, this is absolutely unique, there is no other story in all of human history that really looks at uh, how a woman could be, um, become pregnant uh, through uh, God and the Holy Spirit moving in uh, into her life. This one stands alone. It is like no other. So let's look at Luke 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, again, we talked about that last week, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, same angel as we looked at last week, a town in Galilee to, ple to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, I want to stop there uh, for just a moment and talk a little bit about Nazareth, because I think it's important to kind of lay, uh, set the scene and just help us to really kind of step into the context. If you were to plug uh, in Jesus' day uh, Nazareth into your GPS, um, the thing would start spinning, and then after a little bit, it would say, location not found. I mean, this was a village really off the beaten track. In order to get to Nazareth, um, you had to bypass Jerusalem, the religious center of the universe for Jewish people, take a highway up north into the Galilee region. You would get off at an exit, take a county road for a little while. Then the road would lose its, uh, it would get narrower and narrower. Pretty soon, uh, you turn left and you're onto uh, a gravel road and you ride the this gravel road for a little bit. You take it a little, down a couple miles, and then you see a dirt path, and then you would get off, and you would just drive down this dirt path really, really slowly, and you would finally land, arrive at the backwater town village of Nazareth. I mean, it was a very 
unimportant city. About 30 years ago, uh, my wife and I were traveling uh, to Madagascar to visit my in-laws, who served as medical missionaries there. And my mother-in-law, she was always the navigator. She always had the maps. And so we were traveling from village to village around the island of Madagascar, trying to find the next medical clinic. And I was struggling to see how we were going to get from point A to point B. And as my mother-in-law was explaining it to me, my father-in-law said, you can't get there from here. And over the last several years, this has continued to be a running joke for us, that whenever there's a place that seems like impossible to get to, you can't get there from here, which of course is, you know, impossible, not true. You can always get there, but it's a way of saying it's, it's really back hills. It's really, really difficult to get to. This was such an unimportant city that later on, Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, would say, Nazareth. What, you know, what, what good, what, who has ever come out of Nazareth? What in the world? Why, why does Nazareth even matter when he learns about where Jesus is from? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So the place where this, this, this event happens with Mary, it comes, it lands in a place that is nowhere, I think we can all agree. But it's not just a place of nowhere, but it's also a person of nobody. Mary was not part of the Jewish elite. She was not educated. She didn't, you know, she wasn't like the daughter of Herod. Uh, she didn't, you know, play golf with all the, the, the religious people. She was just a peasant girl, a peasant teenager. Um, her family was very poor, and uh, she was really a nobody. Nobody special, nobody powerful, nobody influential. She was uh, perhaps one of the most unlikely candidates uh, to receive this message from the angel. But really what we have to understand is, of, of course, the angel, God chose Mary, not because she was special in any way. Now she, of course, was in the, in, had the right genes. She was in the right genealogy, had the right lineage. But God came to her because of her faith. And I think this is a great reminder that God works through ordinary people. Mary's dreams, I'm sure, as a little girl, as she was growing up, was to find a Jewish guy, marry a Jewish guy, have lots of babies, raise these children, and then die, probably never traveling very far from her home. Those were probably her aspirations. She didn't have aspirations to do anything big and extraordinary with her life. And into that context, into that mindset, into that thinking, God comes to Mary uh, through this angel. And I think it's always wonderful for us to think about this because it's like, gosh, if God could use someone like Mary, someone so unimportant, someone just so ordinary, but she's got this faith, then maybe God can use me as well. So the story begins uh, in nowhere with a nobody. And the last no I want to throw out there is no way. No way. Nobody was thinking that this was going to happen. In fact, most people had given up hope. And so let me give you a little bit of the context. Mary, of course, is Jewish. And she comes from this group of people that for 400 years, God has been silent. They haven't heard anything uh, since Malachi wrote and prophesied about the Messiah coming. And so in the first century, 
The Jewish people, they were weary. They were worn out. They were tired. They've been waiting and waiting for, for, for centuries and they, many of them, they remembered back to the days of uh, King David and King Solomon and the glory days when uh, the Jewish people, God's people, the chosen one, they were, they were powerful and they were influential and they had the temple. But those days, it was a long, long time ago and it was all in the rearview mirror because after uh, David and Solomon, there were kings that were put on the throne. And most of these kings were really bad guys. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so most of the kings throughout Israel's history, they were really, really bad kings. They were poorly led. And every now and then a a prophet would rise up and there would be a little bit of renewal in the life of the church among the Jewish people. And there would be some hope and, and things would get a little bit better, but then things would fall apart again. And over and over this continued to happen. In about 100 years uh, before Jesus showed up on the scene, there was uh, many false prophets who came and went, and, 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 uh, and, and, and Rome always squished them out. And uh, then there was uh, this family called the Maccabees, and they thought, oh boy, this is going to be it. This is going to be the time where the Jewish people, we rise again. And then Rome said, yeah, no, and they squished them out as well. And so this is what's going on for the Jewish people. They are weary, they're worn out, they're tired, there's sin, and now they're being ruled by a, a, a wicked governor, a guy by the name of Herod. And they're thinking to themselves, no way, no how, maybe in the future, we know about the prophecies in the past, but things are really, really bad. And so the context for the Jewish people is they're, they're tired, they're worn out, they're jaded, they're divided, they're at each other's throats. I mean, it's very different than today, right? I mean, that's the world in which God sent the angel Gabriel to speak this message. There was no joy to the world. It was just darkness and sadness and bitterness and division, just like today. And people were cynical and divided. And in the bleak midwinter, this message comes, an angel, that joy is coming. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, What kind of greeting might this be? But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, uh, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words, or your word be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So silence for 400 years, the angel comes and Mary's surprised. And I would say, of course she's surprised. 
Of course she's surprised because there's been so much silence for so long. There's been so much darkness. There's been so much that's just kind of come and gone. And people have been waiting and waiting. And they're wondering what in the world is going on. But I think one of the other reasons why Mary responds, and I, and I think this very natural, understandable way, is because Mary understood what all Jewish people in the first century understood. And that is this, that God is holy and people are not. God is so holy. God is so amazing. And whenever God shows up to meet people, they, they, uh, they react with fear. Because they understand this problem between holiness and humanity. And I think in many ways we have forgotten about that today. Many ways we think about God as our buddy, God as our friend, and, and we've kind of lost this, this, this awe and wonder of God's holiness and how that separates. And the, and the problem that is for us, that God is holy and that we are not. I think oftentimes we are so casual, even as Jesus followers in our relationship with God. We talk, to, we talk about the man upstairs, right? You ever hear somebody talk about the man upstairs, which is, he's not the man upstairs. He's God. He is so holy. And whenever in scripture, someone would encounter the holy God, they would just drop to their knees. And I think we've lost that awe and wonder of how amazing and holy God is. And I think, I just want to remind all of us this morning, He's not our buddy. He's not our feel-good. He is God. He is holy and perfect in every way. And we are sinful. We are broken. And Mary understood this. And so when an angel shows up to announce that God is coming, that joy to the world is coming, she has this very visceral, strong reaction. How can this be? How can this be? Because God is holy and we are not. As we downplay this whole idea of uh, who God is, and we, and we minimize, and we've talked about this over and over and over, how we minimize our own sin in our lives and the consequences of that sin. We, we lower God and we elevate ourselves. And so it's just like, ah, God's just a little bit above us. I want to remind us this morning that this is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is he is holy and perfect and we are not. But in the midst of that, I think there's some really good news. Uh, Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor, and I've shared this quote with you before, but I think it is worth repeating again. He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. What, he's, what I think Tim Keller is saying is God is so much more amazing than what we can ever imagine. And our sin, our condition is so much worse. And yet somehow, some way, God bridges the gap. And as Jesus followers, we know who bridges the gap. And that, of course, is Jesus. And that's, that's the good news, as, as Tim Keller says. That is the gospel. And, you know, frankly, um, I forget this. I forget God's holiness over and over in my life in, in a very regular way. And, um, and I know you do, too. You guys tell me this in all sorts of different ways. 
that you don't really take the serious, uh, seriously the, the holiness of God. And, and this is why we're reading through the Bible again in 2024. Because from Genesis through Revelation, if you're in the Word, you can't help but notice over and over and over this, this idea of who God is in His holiness, in His perfection. And every time someone encounters God throughout Scripture, they just, they're like, oh my goodness, I am not worthy. But at the same time, we are reminded throughout Scripture that we are broken, that we are sinful, that there is this gap, this chasm that cannot uh, be brought together without the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we, we went, read through the Bible as a congregation in 2021, and uh, many of you read Scripture for the very first time, the entire Bible for the very first time, and said, man, that was really interesting. Some of you said, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Others of you said, that was really hard uh, to read through Scripture. And yes, uh, that is, those are all those things that are in Scripture. And this time around, as we read through Scripture uh, in 2024, we're going to read through it chronologically. So it's going to look a little bit differently than last time we read through it. But it's going to be the same message. And it's just going to be that daily reminder, 15 minutes a day in 2024, God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. That daily reminder that we are sinful, that we are broken, and that there is a chasm, and Jesus stands in the gap. And he invites us to daily walk with him so that we can be in that relationship with God. This is why we are doing it. But Mary, in the first century, she didn't forget so this is why when the angel shows up and says, greetings, favored one, she's like, ah, I don't know if I like that. Because she got it. She understood. Isn't it interesting when the angel shows up to Mary, this, this woman of faith, this very simple woman, she doesn't say, well, of course, of course I'm going to carry the, the Messiah. I mean, I am in the lineage, right? I mean, David and, you know, and all that good stuff, both me and my fiancé, Joseph. Of course. And by the way, you know, I'm a, I'm a good Jewish girl. I read scripture. I follow the law. I do all these things. That wasn't her reaction. She's like, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if I deserve this because she understood the gap between God and her. But God comes to her in his grace. Mary doesn't deserve this. It's not because she's a good person. It's because God has simply come to her and offered her this gift. And then she responds. And uh, I think we oftentimes read through this response fairly quickly. She says, you know, basically do whatever, you know, what you have said, may it be, may, may it so be. I think we move past that pretty fast. We're like, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that great? Isn't Mary just faithful? But Mary knew what she was signing up for. I think she at least knew some of the things she was signing up for. So when she says yes to God, when she says yes to the, the angel Gabriel, that she will carry the Messiah, first of all, she's signing up for a, a, a life of shame, Immediate shame. Here she is, a, un, a young, unwed mother. How is her uh, family, her mother and father, going to react? How are her siblings going to react? How are the neighbors going to react? I mean, this is a small little village. If you've ever been in a small town, everybody talks in a small town. Everybody knows about everybody's stuff, right? 
And Mary knows when she says yes to Jesus, she is signing up for shame and scorn by everyone she knows. The other thing I think she's signing up for when she says yes to God is to raising the Son of God. And those of you who are mothers, I mean, think about this. You got nervous when you would send your kids out, uh, you know, to play. Mary knew that she was going to send her son, Jesus, out into the wilderness to play with the other boys and girls. Well, what if he gets lost? What if I lose the Messiah? right? I mean, or, or, hey, mom, I'm going to go help dad in the carpentry shop. Don't pick up that knife because, you know, she's thinking, hey, you know, what if the son of God cuts off his finger or something like that? And th th then it's on me. I mean, just think of this, moms. You know, you, you carry a lot of responsibility and weight. How would you like to be given the responsibility of raising the son of God? I mean, that's, that's a lot of responsibility. So she is signing up to this uh, incredible weight on her shoulders of, of raising the Son of God. I mean, what, what is that supposed to even be like? And then I think she also knows she's signing up for a, a life filled with roller coaster emotions. I mean, Jesus would heal people. He would feed people. Jesus would raise the dead. And people would be like, that's so awesome. That's Mary's son who did that. But at the same time, Mary's son would also be known as the guy who got scorned, the guy who was a, a, a heretic, uh, the one who was a blasphemer, uh, the one who was telling tales and, and saying all sorts of weird things. I mean, over and over and over, Mary knew that the highs would be really high. But she also knew that the lows were going to be really low. And later on, uh, as she brings him to the temple to dedicate him, she runs into a guy by the name of Simeon. We're going to talk about him in a couple weeks. And as Simeon looks at Jesus, he says, yep, he's going to cause a lot of problems, mama. Hang on. It's going to get really, really bad. And I don't think Mary could have imagined what it was going to be like to watch her son be arrested and tortured and crucified. But those were some really low lows that she was going to experience. So she's, this is what she's signing up for. That she is carrying the Son of God, but she says yes. Mary, when, she, when the angel came to her, was not signing up for a life of comfort a life of peace, a, a life of glory. She was signing up for hardship and suffering. And this is really what the discipleship journey is about for you and for me too. Oftentimes we think to be a Jesus follower, everything is going to go well in our lives. We're going to be healthy. Uh, we might be wealthy. That God is going to bless us, right? But why do we think being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is any different for you and me than it was for Mary? Being a follower of Jesus is hard. It's difficult. And it's going to mean that when we, when we say yes to Jesus, that we are going to experience lots of trials and challenges. About 75 years ago, there was a, a Lutheran pastor, a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. I mean, that's the invitation to follow Jesus, right? It's not to be happy. It's not to be healthy. It's not so that everything goes great in our lives. It's to die, and it's to struggle. It's to go through suffering. 
I mean, this is what makes it a little bit difficult for you and me to invite other people to walk with Jesus, to be in a relationship with Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. Hey, you want to follow Jesus? It's really awesome. You got to die. I mean, it's, it's kind of an awkward invitation, isn't it? But I think it's important that we are really, really clear. And I know many pastors, I know many churches that preach this whole idea that if you are a Jesus follower, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. Everything is going to go your way. I mean, the, the waters are just going to part and your life is going to be really, really good. They're well-meaning, but that's, that's just false, right? That is not the journey of discipleship. And Bonhoeffer understood this. And when he was only 39 years old, he was hung for his faith in Jesus Christ as he was opposing Hitler uh, and, and the Nazis in Germany. He lived his faith at 39. He understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus, it means suffering and sacrifice. This is what, uh, what it means for all of us. Where did Bonhoeffer get this idea? About 500 years before this, this Lutheran pastor um, uh, wrote or said this statement, Martin Luther came on the scene and he was talking about this whole idea of theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And the theology of the glory is, re is, is really all about me. It points to the cross and says, look what Jesus has done for me. The theology of glory says, hey, look at my efforts. Look what I have done. Because of my faith, it's all good. The problem with the theology of glory is it makes it all about me. It makes it all about what I've done. Now, we've talked a little bit about Jesus and the theology of glory, but it all comes back to me. And then my salvation all of a sudden rises and falls on what I have done and how I have responded uh, to the gospel. Whereas the theology of the cross looks uh, to Jesus on the cross and says, look, look what he did. Isn't that amazing what Jesus did? It points beyond ourselves. Look at his obedience. And because of what he has done, not what I've done, Look what he has done. I can be assured of my salvation. I can know that, that I can spend eternity with Jesus. And so this idea of the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, uh, it, it goes way back, but it goes back even before Luther. It goes back to the early church and the apostle Peter. Peter writes this in 1 Peter. In all this, you greatly rejoice Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in, in, in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what Peter is saying is to be a follower of Jesus means to suffer. And yet at the very same time, you can experience that joy. He calls it inexpressible and glorious joy. You're struggling with trials, all kinds of trials, grief. But at the very same time, you can experience joy. And I know for us, this is really hard to get our minds around. But this is how Peter saw it as he walked with Jesus for those three and a half years. 
And so as he walked alongside and, and watched uh, his, his friend, his Messiah, his rabbi, hang on a cross to die, Peter also experienced that incredible joy. And he knew that the, the life of a disciple is both about suffering, but it's also about experiencing joy and peace in the midst of that suffering. So that when Peter was arrested and he was convicted to, uh, to, to, to also die, he says, no, 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 I don't want to just die on a cross, but flip the cross upside down. I'm not even worthy to die in the way in which Jesus died. Because Peter understood, he embraced the suffering. He said, I get it. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to receive it. Because I believe even in the midst of that suffering, God is going to give me that joy and that peace. And I will, uh, God is offering me an eternal life with him forever. So I just want to close uh, by uh, lifting up this whole idea of saying yes to Jesus. And I want to remind us that the only reason why Mary could say yes to Jesus is because God first said yes to her. You know, it doesn't say there's nothing in the story about Mary was looking for God one day. Mary was seeking after God one day. She was reading her Bible one day. She was praying for God to show up one day. God established, God initiated this relationship with Mary. And he came to her and he invited her to walk uh, this journey of suffering and hardship, but also incredible joy and peace. And every step of the way, as we look at Mary's life going forward, we see that God gave her the grace to continue through the suffering and the hardship. He gave her the faith uh, to continue on taking the next step. He gave her the peace and the joy to just keep going and going and going, even as Jesus was hanging on the cross. And that what's true for Mary is true for you and me as well, that we can only say yes to Jesus in our lives because he said yes to us first. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 5, 8. God, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's that great reminder Paul tells us that we don't initiate a relationship with God. He comes to us, and he invites us first into a relationship and we're invited to receive what he has offered to us. The same thing he's offering Mary. And that's to be in relationship with the Son of God, with the Messiah, the one, the only one who can bridge the gap between God's holiness and our human sinful brokenness. So that's the challenge. And I think that's the good news for us this morning that we are just like Mary. God comes to us. He invites us to walk with Jesus he says, hey, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really, really hard. But in the midst of that difficulty, that struggle, that hardship, that grieving, I am going to give you peace and joy. Joy to the world is coming. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this remarkable, ordinary woman, Mary, who you came to so long ago, you spoke to her just as you speak to us today, God. And you invite us to walk with you each and every day. And Lord, you never throughout Scripture promise us an easy life, a comfortable life, 
or a life filled with even happiness. But God, you've promised us something so much more. The words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, when we die to ourselves. You've promised us a journey of discipleship, a journey of presence with you, a journey of peace and hope, the journey of joy. So God, in the midst of all that, encourage us this morning. Challenge us this morning to live into this story, to claim this story. It's not something that happened long, long ago, but that continues to happen today. In our community, in our world, and in our own lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.